Good morning, welcome. Let us stand together, hear from God's word. Psalm 11 says this to us. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his faith. Our God hates wickedness and loves righteousness. So let us flee from the wickedness of the world, the wickedness in our own hearts today, and run to the Lord our righteousness, where we are safe and secure. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, fear not, I am with thee, O oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand. Upheld by my rod, just so never He is with us. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless. And saints, if I do, be thy deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus that lean for repose I will not I will not desert to his foes that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake I'll never no never no never that soul that soul though all hell should endeavor to shake I'll never no never no never forsake You guys can clap for a song like that. There's some great truth in that song. One of the lines, fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed. That comes word for word out of the Bible, out of Isaiah chapter 41. In fact, the whole book of Isaiah has a lot of great things to say about not being afraid, not being anxious, trusting in God's ordering of the nations. 
and trusting and knowing and celebrating that God will one day send the Messiah to establish his kingdom. You guys can take a seat. Well, as elders, we have a recommendation for you next week and the coming weeks, and that is to maybe watch a little bit less of TV, follow social media a little bit less, and focus on serving others a little bit more. That would be good for all of us. Ministry doesn't take a break, no matter what is going on around us in culture, in our city, or in our nation. So a couple opportunities if you'd like to do that through Desert Springs Church. One is that we're doing a blood drive mid-month, like two weeks from now, on a Friday and a Saturday. I'm not going to give you the details on that. For the details, go to our website, click on Upcoming, and you'll see it pop up. Or if you've got our app, the DSC app on your phone, open up the app, click on Register, and you'll see the details come up. We do need you to sign up for a slot, not to just come at random and check in and kind of wait in line to have your blood drawn. Uh, This is the second time Blood Services has asked us as a church to help out, and both times we've said yes, of course. There's a dire need for blood in our city and our state. Uh, There is normally, but even more so, this year. So know that when you donate blood, it doesn't go for, like, experimentation in in a lab of a corporate world somewhere, nor to high schools or colleges for, like, biology students in their labs to put on a slide and look at under a microscope. You're saving lives or you're helping someone through a critical surgery. So you literally are giving the gift of life. Another thing coming up is Community Christmas. Josiah, our missions minister, and I have had several people over the past couple weeks ask us, are you guys doing Community Christmas this year? Answer is yes. It'll look different, but yes, we are doing it. And I'm not giving you details on that today, but a week from today... I want you to come with two things. I want you to come with open ears. Uh, We'll be talking about what Community Christmas is and kind of talking as if you're a visitor, you've never gone through that before. How you can either go to the res, these two locations, or send things with the team from DSC that goes to the res. Uh, And second, we will have trees up with tags. So we usually tell our kids in stores or at a supper table for food, don't have grabby fingers while I'm telling you as adults, have grabby fingers. Go to the trees, grab uh, these tags, which means you'll buy toys and probably more so this year, food staples that you'll bring back. Uh, But we'll have a few restrictions, so you're not allowed to go to a tree, like touch a tag and then think, oh, wait a minute, I got 10 tags. I don't need an 11th. I'll let someone else take that. No, if your hand touches it, it's going home with you. (laughs) And then that needs to come back with a gift attached to it the following week or two. We'll remind you of all that next week. Finally, last week at our members' meeting, we affirmed 12 new members to Desert Springs Church, which is really a cool thing, that 12 could come to a class. The class was in person, a lot of restrictions in the class, uh, and meet with an elder when the easy thing would be to say, I'll wait till 2021 when hopefully we're, we're behind all of this. So our point of application here is maybe today even in the parking lot, or here in the worship center, you see somebody two rows behind you as you turn around. Even with a mask, you don't recognize them. Reach out and say hello to them. They might be one of our 12 new members. If you're visiting today online, we'd love to have you start a dialogue with us. It doesn't have to be about membership. Maybe that's the farthest thing from your mind. Maybe it's just a few questions about 
our church or a church in general or Jesus. I'd love to talk with you. You can start that by emailing us at info at dscabq.com. And if you're here in the worship center, we'd love for you to come up after the service. We'll have two pastors up here, and we'd love to chat with you for a few minutes. Father, we ask that you would use this service. Use your words in the Bible that we'll hear later. Uh, use your words that we've already heard in song and we'll hear more of. Things like that verse from Isaiah 41. Open my eyes so that I may see that you, my God, will walk with me. Open our eyes as a church that we might see what you have for us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand and rejoice. In days of peace and days of rest In times of loss and loneliness Though rich or poor, your word is true That all my ways are known to No trial has come beyond your hand No step I walk beyond your plan this path is dark outside my view For all my ways are known to you Oh, what peace And oh, what peace that I have found Wherever I may be
this peace by faith. Faith in a God that is working all things for his glory and our good.
best say amen. You can be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the one who will judge the living and the dead, the one about whose kingdom we say, come. We say as a church this morning, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come. Father, as we contemplate Tuesday, what that day means for our nation, we ask that whoever the new president is, you would cause him to be a man that will bend the knee to Jesus. A man who will start his day with an open Bible. A man who will pray, not because it's expected, but because it is the longing of his heart. We ask for new senators, new congressmen and women across the country that they would not rejoice in the promotions and strategies of their own parties and staff, that they would not think or say, I've won. The people want me. They rejected the other person. That, that they would view their office as a sacred trust that they would know that truth is not subjective. Your word is truth. And Jesus is the only truly holy and perfect and good God and man. For us, Father, some of us have built castles this year with moats filled around them. We're thankful that we're saved and we draw up the bridge and care for only ourselves and our family. So help us, even this week, to love our neighbors, even those, especially those, perhaps, who do things like smoke around our kids or park in the wrong spot or they parent in ways we disagree with or they have a bumper sticker that we despise. Help us to see that the way of Jesus is to forgive offense, to model purity, and to engage in love with those who are far from you, God. Help us to learn, even this week, more of what it means to speak the truth in love. For us, Father, for those of us who are weary, restore to us the joy of your salvation. Help us to focus on the your word in that verse. Salvation is something you have done in our lives, in and through and on account of Christ. When Tuesday evening comes or later in the week, may we put our trust not in, as the Bible says, chariots. May we not be overly sad, overly angry, or overly happy. We say to you now, as your church at Desert Springs, that our trust is not in a man, not in a message, not a party or not a plan. Our trust is in our only and always King, Jesus. In days of peace or in times of loss, no trial has come beyond your hand. No step we walk is beyond your plan. Thank you, God, for your sovereignty and your kingship. Amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song. A 
abide with me. Fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide when other helpers fail and comforts will. Help of the helpless abide with me. Thou on my head in early youth didst smile, and though rebels and perverse be thou the close Lord abide with me I need thy presence every passing now but, but thy grace for the tempter's power who like thyself I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight, tears lose their bitterness. Where is thy sting Where grave thy Lord Jesus, we give thanks and praise to you that by your spirit you have chosen to take your abode within your people. You dwell in our midst. We thank you. Lord, we pray with great confidence that you will stick with us and you will see us to the end. We long for that day when we will more fully dwell with you and see you face to face and be like you. Until then, Lord, Again, stick with us, be our God, be our guide, and show us more of yourself in your word. We pray so for our good and for your glory. Amen. You can be seated. 
Well, we're in Nehemiah 2 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you of a couple of other passages outside of Nehemiah, such as Psalm 124, which calls us to ponder if the Lord had not been on our side. Then what? If the Lord had not been our, on our side, well, the psalmist says, we would have been doomed. Our trouble would have gone up over our heads. Our enemies would have conquered us. Just a few psalms later, we read in Psalm 127, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless... The Lord watches over the city. The watchman keeps awake in vain. The Bible would have us know and feel our utter and complete dependence upon God. The Bible would have us know that our best efforts are nothing if the Lord is not in them. Of course, that reality must not encourage laziness or indifference or, or fatalism. The Bible teaches, of course, that we should be diligently planning and strategizing, laboring, not lazy, not fatalistic, but the Bible also teaches that we are completely dependent on God for any and every good outcome. Whatever you have is of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3. So our God is not like five-hour energy, which gives you a little boost in the afternoon. Our God is not like a steroid that enhances performance. And our God is not like a crutch that we merely lean upon when we're hobbling along. No, we need full dependence upon God. And biblically understood, that should actually breed thoughtful, energetic labors. We find these truths, and these truths really intention, if you like, we find them so beautifully displayed in Nehemiah, especially in chapter 2. Let me read Nehemiah 2 for us. I'll read just the last sentence of chapter 1 to remind us. Nehemiah said, Now I was cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city... The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. 
And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, but when Simbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it despised them greatly. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down in its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Well, as we learned from last week in chapter 1, Nehemiah is a Jew living under Persian rule and really serving a Persian king, Artaxerxes. And in chapter 1, Nehemiah received a report that was alarming, a report about Jerusalem. Trouble and shame were the words used to describe the state of the people in chapter 1. And as for the physical land... Well, the walls were down and the gates were burned. They were still in ruins from the Babylonian devastation that took place back in 586 B.C. And now, 140 years later to the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah no doubt had learned of some of the progress that had been made. Some of the captives had returned some under Zerubbabel, and then another batch under Ezra. Both of those recorded in the book of Ezra. Some progress had been made in the story of Ezra, like the building of the temple, really the rebuilding of the temple. 
But the overall report that came to Nehemiah on that fateful day of chapter 1 of Nehemiah, it was trouble and shame, the walls still down, the gates still burned. And so he prayed. We saw that last week. He wept and mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. He confessed the sins of the people. He reminded God of his promises of old, and he asked God to hear these prayers and to act. The chapter ends with a hint of what was to come. Chapter 1 ended, the prayer ended by Nehemiah saying, Lord, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man, the king, to whom he was the cupbearer. And then we come to chapter 2, which we've just read, and it's a chapter showing Nehemiah's dependence upon God and his diligent work. Nehemiah is, on the one hand, strategic and leaderly and even shrewd, and on the other hand, it is clearly the hand of the Lord, and that alone, the hand of the Lord, a repeated phrase in our chapter It is that that is ultimately decisive in making any progress in the plan of God. We can break down our chapter according to its settings or scenes. And so as you imagine a drama or a play where the backdrop to the characters, what's behind them, sometimes changes. It's a new setting or scene. Well, if we think in those terms, there are five scenes or settings in our chapter. And the first of them will take the longest because that's where most of the drama is taking place. The first we could call before the king. That's the first setting, before the king, verses 1 to 8. Nehemiah here and throughout this book, really, he's so exemplary. He's an example to us. He's an example in patience. That's what we should see first in his exemplary ways before the king. Patience. You may not notice it at first if you can't tell from the calendar references here. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, Nehemiah received a bad report in the month of Kislev. And you fast forward to chapter 2, verse 1, and now it's the month of Nisan. That's four months later. In chapter 1, Nehemiah was praying for God's favor before the king today. That's the word, today. Lord, do it today. May I have favor before the king today. But as God's timing is not always our own, we shouldn't be surprised that here it's four months later and Nehemiah hasn't yet had this decisive conversation before the king In fact, even on that fateful day, four four months later, he may not have been planning it. He has unshakable grief. His face is sad, verse 2, and the king can tell, but this is probably not him putting it on as part of a strategic plan to now get the king to ask some questions about his sadness. We know that because Nehemiah, when the king notices he's sad, Nehemiah is very much afraid. Nehemiah is probably irrepressibly sad. He's been sad for four months. 
And he's hidden it quite well, but he can hide it no longer. The king notices the sadness. And noting that, Nehemiah is very much afraid. Very much afraid because it was a capital offense to be in the king's presence without a happy countenance. You can imagine, a king would think, shouldn't everyone be happy around the king? And certainly the, the, the wine presenter, the, the cup bearer, especially in the month of Nisan, a month of celebration, Nehemiah was afraid that the king noticed his sad face. And so Nehemiah said, let the king live forever. But then explained, why should not my face be sad when the city, the, father, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins? And this leads to Nehemiah showing us these an exemplary men when it exemplary man when it comes to prayer. When Nehemiah says what he says in verse three, the king asks, "What are you requesting?" And then we see verse four. So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse five, and I said to the king. Now, do you see what's happening there? Now, we saw Nehemiah be a, a man of prayer, so exemplary well uh, in chapter 1 as he prayed at length. Here, it's just a brief mention, but so powerfully does it teach us. Nehemiah, in the midst of this conversation with the king, the most powerful man in the land, the king asks a question, and before answering, Nehemiah pauses to briefly pray. No doubt to pray some kind of prayer of help. Maybe it was just that, Lord, help. And people sometimes call these kinds of prayers popcorn prayers or arrow prayers. Just real quick, shot off to the Lord. It's subtle in the story, but it's so significant. Charles Spurgeon preached a whole sermon on just that phrase. I prayed to the God of heaven and answered. You see, before he answers the earthly king, as important as that was, he goes before the king of kings for true help. It really flows out of his communion with God. This is a great example of what many have called practicing the presence of God. He's simply acknowledging before God what is happening and putting it before the Lord, asking the Lord for his help. It's a great example of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, praying without ceasing, which doesn't mean to pray nonstop no matter what you're doing. Don't eat, don't talk to anyone, just keep talking to God. No, it means pray all the time. Keep bringing things to the Lord. Practice his presence. Or as the reformers spoke, life is to be lived out quorum Deo is the Latin phrase, before the face of God. That's what Nehemiah is doing. It's not the only kind of prayer that we should have. No, we should have prolonged prayer as well, not just popcorn prayer, but we should be thinking in terms of the different kinds of prayer, having a well-balanced diet of praying. John Piper suggests some sets of kinds of prayers that we need. He says we need spontaneous 
and scheduled. We need explosive, that's popcorn prayer, and extensive or prolonged. We need prayers that are free and formed. They're they're sometimes right out of our heart, off the top of our head, and sometimes we, we draw prayers from the Bible or those who've prayed better than we have in church history. And we should pray assembled prayers and alone prayers, together and on our own. We should all ask ourselves where we need shoring up, where we tend to lean, what we tend to do more naturally than the others. We should shore up what's lacking. We should also realize how both kinds of prayers, both wings of prayers really influence and affect each other. And so if we find ourselves never doing popcorn prayers, maybe we should give ourselves more heartily to prolonged prayers that we might get an appetite for communion with God and go to him more naturally with the day's burdens. Back to the dialogue between Nehemiah and the king. He prayed to God and then he answered, O Lord, send me to Judah. Send me there that I might rebuild it, he says in verse 5. The king asks how long he'll be gone. Nehemiah answers, doesn't say in our text how long, but whatever it was, was pleasing to the king, and the king sent him. Nehemiah takes it a step further. If it would please the king, would you also send me with papers that I might have free passage through the territories on the way and that I might have good lumber from your forest that I might have the materials for the rebuilding when I get there. You can see there's preparation involved. There has been preparation involved. Nehemiah is ready with answer. He's ready with responses. He's ready with what he needs. He has boldness to ask the king for what he needs. And he asks and the king grants it. Which leads us to to ponder this, that Nehemiah is also a great example of a, a posture before secular civil authorities. That's what this king represents. He's not a Jewish king. He represents secular civil authority. And what a great lesson this is for us today to see and to learn from Nehemiah that he doesn't dismiss this king's authority. He doesn't ignore this king's authority, but he honors it. He places himself under it. He makes his requests known and he boldly trusts God for the outcome. He's a great example of a, a right posture before secular civil authority. And he's a great example for his perspective before God. Not only in his dependence upon God, but also in his glory to God. His credit given to God. So in verse 8, the king granted what I asked for. And notice, Nehemiah says, For the good hand of my God was upon me. 
the good hand of my God was upon me. His power, his blessing, his leading, the hand of the Lord upon me. That's a phrase used six times in the book of Ezra, twice in our chapter. It's a beautiful phrase. And here, Nehemiah gives credit to God as he should. The king granted what I asked for. Why? Well, we might say because Nehemiah was shrewd, because he was patient, because he waited for the right time, because he asked in the right way, because he brought honor to the king, because he didn't ask for two. All those might be yes and good and true, but they are not decisive unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city. It's all in vain. All that is before the king. That's the first scene. Then secondly, the scene moves to beyond the river. Beyond the river. That's the phrase in verse 9. And notice in your Bibles, it's capitalized there. Beyond the river. That's because it's not just a geographic proximity. It's a, a territory. It's, a, it's an area outside the land of Judah that was still under King Artaxerxes' rule and reign. There, there were governors, and they were not Jewish governors, and they were not favorable, generally speaking, to the Jews. Nehemiah has been sent with King Artaxerxes' letters, and so he has every right to be in their land and to pass freely, even to get lumber from the forests. But these two governors beyond the river, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, notice they are so bold to dismiss the king's letters and oppose Nehemiah's passage and his purposes. Verse 10, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, back in Ezra chapter 4, that was back about 13 years ago from the point of Nehemiah 2. Back in Ezra 4, there were efforts among the Jews to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But there it was the governors of the places, the territories beyond the rivers. They were different governors back then than the ones in Nehemiah 2, but the same kinds of governors. And they wrote to King Artaxerxes a letter with lies about the intentions of the Jewish people. And it was influential. King Artaxerxes, yeah, Artaxerxes put an immediate stop to the rebuilding of the walls in Ezra 4. And just that right there might speak to the whole context of our chapter, might speak to the the danger and the uncertainty of Nehemiah's mourning and his requests before the king. You just don't know how these things are going to go with these kinds of kings. Yes, in Ezra 7, it was the same King Artaxerxes who then had a more positive turn and sent Ezra with a blessing and letters of commission to take on the way. But you never know whether you're going to get an Ezra 4 kind of Artaxerxes or an Ezra 7 kind of Artaxerxes. God's big picture is sure. It is promised. 
but, but the timing and the exact details are usually unknown to God's people. And so what's known to Nehemiah is a, a prophecy from Jeremiah that took place even before the Jews were taken out of Jerusalem into Babylonian captivity. Even then, God was promising through the prophet Jeremiah that there would not only be, yes, judgment and captivity, but then a return and a restoration and a rebuilding to the land. So let me just give you some references, and you can write them down and look them up later. Jeremiah 30, verse 10. God says, Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease in the land. Or chapter 30, verse 18 God says, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. And then chapter 33, verse 7, God says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and rebuild them as they were at first. Nehemiah knows these things. Nehemiah thought that's what was happening in the days of Ezra. And they were, but not quite yet, right? Slowly. Forwards, then backwards. Two steps forward, one step back. This is what Nehemiah was hoping was happening in his day and with the king Artaxerxes' blessing to go back to Judah. This is what Nehemiah was hoping would happen as he entered this beyond-the-river territory with letters of permission And then there was opposition. Opposition. He knows the big picture. He knows the people will return. There will be rebuilding and restoration. But he doesn't know exactly how. He doesn't know exactly when. He doesn't know what exactly will come tomorrow. And so this particular conflict in verses 9 and 10, beyond the river with these governors, sort of just fizzles. There's no resolution. And we the readers know, yeah, it'll resurface at the end of our chapter. But Nehemiah, with their opposition in the rearview mirror, just takes his steps forward toward Jerusalem, leading to our third scene, assessing the damage. He arrives in Jerusalem and begins assessing the damage, verses 11 to 16. He enters Jerusalem not with a grand entrance, not with loud claims, and he inspects Jerusalem basically in secret and alone. There's this emphasis on secrecy in these verses. He he inspects Jerusalem by night. He told no one. No one knew except a few men who were with them. He didn't take with them a multi-animal caravan as he went around. All these references to the secrecy of what he's doing. Why? Well, I think it's a mark of good leadership. Unlike our politicians who announce their candidacy with parades and, you know, grand promises that everyone knows will, will, will not happen. But, I mean, just how it goes, so can't really fault him for suggesting such grand promises. And Nehemiah shows up behind the scenes, and he wants to assess the situation without any fanfare or publicity. 
And what he sees, well, it's just as he heard, rubble, rubble, assessing the damage. And then this quickly moves to the fourth scene, verses 17 and 18. We could call it recruiting help, recruiting help. Verse 17 says, then I said to them, them who? Well, those whom he wasn't telling about his investigation. Uh, verse 16, those the Jews, those the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were going to do the work. He didn't tell them about his inspection, but now, having inspected, he says to them, you see the trouble we're in and how Jerusalem lies in ruins. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king. And they said, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. You see again those wings of the plane. You see diligence and dependence upon God. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Nehemiah gathers the recruits, but gives credit to God for the progress made thus far, and uh, of course shows himself dependent upon God for any progress still to come. Progress in building a city's walls. How shall we today apply such a thing? How do we apply that? Some have said that Nehemiah is a book about leadership. And it's hard to say otherwise. I mean, it clearly shows a man left and right, leading wisely, carefully, thoughtfully, in a godly way, in a God-dependent way. But is it merely about leadership? Does Nehemiah merely give us good advice for Monday's strategy meeting meeting at the office? Well, I think not. It shows us good spiritual and practical leadership, but, but here's the connection that we should make as New Testament Christians. Because Nehemiah and his partners were not just rebuilding any old wall. They were not just involved in some civic project. Their efforts were for the restoration of God's Old Testament kingdom. This is kingdom work. This is spiritual work with very practical significance and implications. And for us, as New Testament Christians, the equivalent to the Old Testament kingdom of God is not the nation of the United States. It's not our workplace and it's certainly not, you know, putting cinder block brick over brick in our backyards. No, the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament kingdom of God is the church, the body. Now, we'll be doing this all through our study of Nehemiah. We'll be coming back to these same kind of connections from them back then to us here today. So let's tune our ears to it now. When we hear of these things, like in Nehemiah 1 and 2, 
of mourning over the state of God's people and praying for the state of God's people and the progress of God's work among them. When we hear of them back then seeking the favor of secular civil authority that they might have the freedom to do X, Y, and Z, and when we hear of one like Nehemiah going in and inspecting the state of this kingdom, physical as it was back then, and hear of them partnering together for the rebuilding from the ruins, we need to hear it with our New Testament ears on. There is a time, as we said last week, there's a time to mourn the spiritual state of the church. There's a time to pray and keep praying for the state of the church. There is a time, as we're in right now, where we will need to seek from the secular civil authorities certain freedoms, and we should do it with honor and respect and prayer, yet boldness. When we think about the the planning that takes place in Nehemiah, we should be reminded of the kind of strategery, if I can use George W.'s old word, strategery that we're to have in the church. Hebrews 10 tells us to consider how to stir up love and good works among ourselves. We should partner together. We should hear these phrases drawn from Nehemiah and really to make them our own. Come, let us build. Let us not build physical structures, but let us build the body of Christ. Let us testify to one another. The hand of the Lord our God has been among us for our good. And we don't deserve it. Let us say to one another, yes, let us rise up and build. And let us strengthen the work of our hands for this good work. Of course, Jesus said he would do the building. I will build my church, he said in Matthew 16. However, he will do that not totally apart from us. He makes us workers. He makes us priests. Ephesians 4 tells us that God has given leaders in the church for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the church. So we have an analogous story in Nehemiah. Sort of a a locker room picture of a different kind of game, if we can put it that way. It should get us excited. Nehemiah, he was blessed of the Lord to walk into Jerusalem, assess the ruins, but turn to the people and say, come, let us build. No longer will they mock us. Let us build. The hand of the Lord is upon us for good. We don't know the specifics of tomorrow, but we know the end is sure. He will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So strengthen your hands, for the work is at hand, and the work is glorious. We don't build a a Jerusalem of old. We're involved in building the new Jerusalem 
We're involved in building a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It won't be easy. There'll be opposition, but the end is sure. And that's where our chapter ends. Fifth, we could call it facing opposition, the last scene in the last couple of verses. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and now Geshem the Arab joins in, they all heard of our plans. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? You are rebelling against the king. Of course, they weren't. That was slander. They had the king's blessing and they had the papers to prove it. Well, that doesn't matter. Sanballat and company will again strike up this opposition in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, then again in chapter 6. We shouldn't be surprised. This is as old as the serpent against the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. This is the same as Psalm 2, the nation's rage against the Lord and against his anointed and against the anointed's people. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He will have his way. He will put his king on his hill and he will reign. It's in light of passages like that that Nehemiah can say in verse 20 to Sanballat and company, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The end is sure. He doesn't know exactly what tomorrow will bring. He's not being presumptuous. But God clearly is directing his steps and using him. And he knows the end is sure. And we know the end is even more sure than he could have imagined. We see further progress than he ever saw in his days. We see this beautiful plan of God unfolding. It's a beautiful plan that's unfolding in the days of Nehemiah, right? We're right on the cusp of the rebuilding program to begin. And oh, how important those walls were in those days for the physical city of Jerusalem. But the plan moves on. It's not merely about Jerusalem. It's the presence of God among his people in an incarnate Christ and his indwelling Holy Spirit. What a beautiful plan of God, and who could have seen it coming? But he knew at the right time, in the fullness of time, Christ came, born of a woman, under the law, and he died for sinners. As Acts 2 and Acts 4 tell us, it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that Christ would be crucified at the hands of sinners, but God would raise him up on the third day. We know what happened. We know what will come. Christian, there are things you can know. There are things you can know, and you better know what you can know. And you better know what you, what you don't know. We don't know how this election will go. We don't know how long this COVID thing will last. You don't know for sure what job you'll have in 2021. You don't know, fill in the blank. There's a lie you don't know. But what we know, we 
No. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So put your hand to this. Strengthen your hand for this work that cannot be thwarted. Well, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing to that end. Yes, Lord, we thank you for your glorious plan, which is indeed so sure. You have not told us every specific, and may we not be presumptuous. And in light of that, may we go to you often in prayer, prolonged prayers and popcorn prayers as well. May we commune with you about our day's trouble and blessings. And may we thank you for Christ again and again. May our eyes be on him. May we continue to behold the wondrous mystery of him coming, dying, being raised, and coming again. These things are sure. We thank you for it in his name. Amen. Let us stand and respond. Come behold the wondrous mystery In the dawning of the King Be the theme of heaven's praises Robed in frail humanity In our longing, in our darkness Now the light of life has come look to Christ who condescended took on flesh to ransom come behold the wondrous mystery be the perfect in his living, in his suffering, never trace no stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law. mystery Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory see the price of our redemption see the Father's plan unfold bringing
in power, resurrected as we will be when He Have you come to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ, born in the flesh, dying on the cross, and raised on the third day, victoriously living forevermore? It is gloriously mysterious, but it can be known, and it is worthy of your attention. It is worthy of all your trust, your faith. That's what it means to become a Christian, is just to put your trust in what I just said, this wondrous mystery of Christ born on the cross for our sins, raised on the third day victoriously. Would you put your hope in him today? You know, Nehemiah said to Sanballat and company, you have no part of this. And that's true as long as you're against it, as long as you're against him. But once you put your lot with him, then Jesus said, he who is not against me is for me would you be for him today would you join with him and join with us in putting your hand to the plow and giving yourself to something that is of infinitely greater importance and infinitely longer lasting than an election cycle or your job as important as that might be or even your children or your marriage. This is greater and more sure and worthy of your attention, your affection, and your energies. We would love to help you with that. If that's new to you, if you haven't yet come to believe what I just have spoken to you, then we would love to help you today. And as Ron said earlier, there'll be people up front who are here to greet you, counsel you, pray with you, or answer any questions that you might have. Christian, let's go for this place sure about what we can know and knowing what we don't know. And let's just walk that line of faith throughout this life. There are things we know and we know them for sure. There are things we don't know, but it's all right because there are things we know for sure. Amen? Amen. Amen.